Uh, good morning. Do you notice anything different up here? It is true. You guessed it right. I got a haircut, and I'm wearing a black suit. Now, in all honesty, I want to thank the people who put up this wall, and they uh, they did a great job, and I thank them for it. And uh, <coughs> speaking of which, I don't know how this transitions at all, but uh, we're going to talk today about uh, immortality and the new heavens and new earth. And that is coming. It is guaranteed. Some of our loved ones are already there. There are many myths uh, throughout history and different cultures about the immortality of youth. Uh, And in this case, I found this one, this fun one, is Aos. And Aos is the goddess of the dawn in Greek mythology. She's not a goddess. She's not real. But in Greek mythology, Eos, uh, that's the one up top there. She's the girl. It's one of the few pictures I found of her that I could actually post because she's quite naked in most other ones. I mean, very naked. But anyway, uh, <coughs> this is a fun one because uh, Eos, who's the goddess of the dawn, had a lover named, uh, here he is, uh, what's his name? Tethonus, however you pronounce that. And she wanted him to live forever. So uh, Eos asked Zeus if her lover could live forever. And he said, sure. She forgot to ask that he be young. So Zeus, trickster that he is, uh, made uh, Tithonus old forever. And in fact, so old that he could barely move or barely think. And, uh, you know, in Greek mythology, the stories change over time. But there's one version of this story where he turns into a cicadus, that bug, and and he longs to die for all of eternity, and he can't. Uh, So, what about us? What about the reality of life? All of us grow from childhood. And turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians 4. We'll pray here coming up in a second. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me. Yeah, I, I marvel at, like, Maggie, yeah, for many reasons. But, um, th- for instance, yesterday, I had her by the hands, and she, I was lifting her up, and I can still do that. There will be a day when I won't. But I'm lifting her up in the air. And she's like, Daddy, let me jump and you lift me. So she, I'm like, yeah, cool. We've done this before. She jumps and I lift her at the same time. Well, I got the timing wrong. She jumped. I lifted too late. And I just, you could hear her arms just like snap or whatever. And I was like, oh, my God. I'm like, are you okay? And she's like, sure. You know. If that happened to, you, if that happened to me... I'd be at Kaiser Permanente getting a new shoulder. Um, We all grow from childhood. As we grow from childhood, our muscles, our joints, our systems, cardiovascular systems and all such, work wonderfully. And they get stronger and stronger. And then we peak. Whenever your peak was, that was somewhere around late 20s, I think. And then we start to decay. We decay and we decay. 
And there's nothing we can do about it. If we're wise in the Lord, our inner selves keep growing and getting stronger into our 50s, our 60s, our 70s, our 80s. And we're strong in our confidence in our Lord. We have courage because of his authority. And yet our bodies do not keep pace with our minds. And our bodies decay rapidly. If we try to eat healthy, in other words, donuts in moderation. If we exercise, and I highly recommend these. As I get older, I have adopted some of this because I just, I just can't function. Anyway... You know, we, st- we stave off the process, but it's inevitable. Things break, strokes, cancers, it all happens. They creep up on us unannounced. Second Corinthians chapter 4.16, look at it with me. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Notice that inner man is being renewed. Day by day. You couple this with Colossians 3. It says that our new man is renewed in the image of Christ who created him, him or her. But for momentary light affliction, there's a reason why it's momentary. We're not made for this world. That's the reason. There's a reason why you say, well, why can't we find, you know, the Fountain of Youth is another down in Florida, right? Ponce de Leon, yeah, supportedly found it, didn't find it. Anyway, there's no such thing. Why would, <clears throat> it would be torturous for us to remain in this world forever in the way that it is, even if you did remain young. You know, that's the other myth is the vampire. Right? You could be perpetually young. But, uh, and those were fun. Those were some of my favorite horror movies was uh, the vampire. It was a bell... Uh, Lagozi, yeah, he was just so awesome at it. But uh, Anne Rice, who is a, another author, that I used to read her stuff back in the in the in the past. She wrote vampires in the reality of the fact that they grew bored, and she put a human twist to their whatever. They're not real, just in case you think I think they're real. Uh, <clears throat> So it's momentary. Notice he calls it light. In the spiritual realm and in the physical realm, Satan will use our physical frailties against us to make us cranky, unhappy, right? I'm going to be cranky and unhappy and talk about and talk about and talk about everything that's wrong with me, on and on and on, and I become ungracious and self-absorbed. This is not God's plan for us. You say, well, why doesn't God just keep us young forever? Because you're not destined for this world. You're not to remain here. Thankfully, we're only here for a short time. So in verse 17 again, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things that are not seen. And that's what we're going to look at today. The things that are not seen. Not yet, but they will be. For the things which are seen are temporal. That means temporary world. But the things that are not seen are eternal. And we're going to link that today to the return of our Lord. In this temporal world, we have a very real adversary, the devil. He is very real. 
And he very, very much hates all that is good and all that is from God. In response, God gave us a promise. One that he gave at the beginning of the fall of man and one that repeats or he repeats in various ways throughout his scripture in this temporary kingdom that God rules. The last lines of the Bible have the Lord saying three times, three times, I'm coming quickly. There is a new you and a new world to come. And when the Lord returns, no one's going to be able to stop, no one is going to stop the creation of the new world and the new people. He will judge the unbeliever. He will shine his very glory through every believer. There is heaven and earth right now. But in the future, there will be no distinction. They will be one. Heaven will be earth and earth will be heaven in the new creation. Now, there's a few of our own who have done this, <coughs> meaning live in light of eternity. And they have been called home recently. They were not perfect by any means. None of us are. But they lived their final decades in the pursuit of the Lord. Uh, Deb Wilding's mother went home to be with the Lord about a week ago, Alan's wife. And her father went home to be with the Lord about a month prior to that. She lost both her parents very quickly. Her and her sister took tremendous care of their parents. And uh, for Deb and Alan, we pray for you. I ask that you continue to pray for them and their families, for their life to continue on, and for their loss. And we love you very much. Yesterday morning, with the rising sun, one of our own congregation went home to be with the Lord. And that is my dear friend, Roger Bennett. Roger lived 85 years by the grace of God, and he survived by his wife, Suzanne, and many kids and grandkids. He is my friend and always will be, and I dedicate God's message to him today. Today is about eternity, and that's exactly where Roger is right now. So, let's open up in prayer. Let's be so grateful and thankful for God and his word and our future and our destiny in heaven. And um, with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for eternal life. Thank you for the salvation that our Lord has brought to this world. And thank you that this world has been conquered by him and that it is temporary. What Christ has also conquered is death. When he was resurrected, he walked out of that tomb conquering death and all who believe upon him will die physically, but they will not die. They will not experience the second death. They will be face to face with you and the Lord forever. We thank you, Father, that through Christ and Christ alone has death been overcome and life been given. We pray for Suzanne and her family. We pray for the Wildings and their family. And for all others, there's so many others, Father, whom... You have brought home, and for those of us who remain, are actually a little jealous of them. And we're so very grateful that we have the confidence 
of the world to come. And that confidence is that they are home with you. May your word this morning, Father, enlighten us so that we live in light of eternity while we walk in this temporary world. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All rise, please.
Uh, we'll start in Second Thessalonians 1, which is our main book at current. And, and today we're, uh, we have been looking at the return of the Lord uh, here in the context of the second coming of the Lord, not the rapture, but the second coming where he will bring both judgment upon the unbeliever and glory in the believer. That's actually how it's uh, phrased in Second Thessalonians is that when he returns, he is glorified in us and we are marveled within ourselves at him. So, <clears throat> but today, and when you look at this, the second coming of the Lord, you can look at two different things. One is the judgment, and there's a whole lot about that in the scripture. And the other is the new world or the new universe, the new heaven and earth, uh, and the new humanity with Christ, and what we call eternity. And you can look at that. Today we're going to look at that. Uh, Today we look at the uh, new humanity and the marvelous promises that you and I have that we are to rely upon all the time. Uh, There's a promise of something coming. And this world is temporary. Uh, And another thing we're going to look at today we have to emphasize is that although the world is in chaos, um, Jesus is still ruling. And this is clear in the scripture. There is a kingdom here. A lot of people don't like that because they say, oh, you're thinking the the kingdom of the millennial kingdom. And there's a lot of controversy. I, I, I read about it all the time and I can't stand it sometimes. It's Uh, the conflict that goes on, just about using the word kingdom. It's okay to use the word kingdom. The scripture uses it. Just make sure you understand what kingdom you're talking about. Um, And human history is a kingdom of God. In the scripture, there's a universal kingdom of God, which is everything. And what that's talking about is his sovereignty. You know, when man fell, when Satan fell and man fell and there's a rebellion, did God lose any control? Did he lose like 1% of the control of things? He lost no control. So there is a kingdom, but it's of a mediatorial, temporary or temporal kind until the kingdom is established at the return of our Lord on earth. And that we're uh, Calais, what they call us, is a thou- that's the Greek word for a thousand. We believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ when he returns. So if you look at Second Thessalonians 1.7, it says, When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Notice the when. I've truncated this a lot. I'm not reading the whole passage in context because I'm focusing here today on the return of our Lord. This when is when he's going to deal out retribution or repay uh, those who have done evil and glorify those who are saved and those who have obeyed the gospel and those who have disobeyed the gospel. Notice that he's returning or revealed. This Greek word is apocalypsis. It's the apocalypse of Christ, if you will. It means an uncovering, and he's going to be uncovered or revealed to the whole world. So this apocalypsis is bodily, 
It's not like, hey, did Jesus come back? You know, <laughs> ain't nobody gonna doubt it. It's flashing forth from east to west like lightning. The whole world's gonna see it. The whole world's gonna see him when he comes back. Amen. So all the people you've been telling about Christ and he's real and his gospel, and they're like, no, you're cute. It's a lie. It's a fairy tale. Everybody's gonna see it. Everybody is gonna see it. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And we long for this day. But until then, go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 13. You see these two words together so much in the New Testament, blamelessness and holiness. Blamelessness. Meaning that I'm not stained by sin. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm, I'm not conquered by it. And holiness is very similar. It's a life that is not just the, I don't do that. I'm not stained by that. But holiness is all the things that I do. Uh, all the things that I do that are of the will of God. So in verse 13, it says that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, the last passage, it said that he's returning or his revelation from heaven is with his mighty angels. And here we have saints. And this Greek word is hagioi, and it means holy ones. It's the plural of the word saint. And holy ones could refer to angels also. And so, and we know from Revelation 19, right after the wedding feast, we return with him on white horses. We're with him the angels are with him. This enormous retinue. Who's going to miss this? Nobody. Nobody. So from these passages and several others, the second coming of our Lord is for two purposes. It is for the judgment of mankind. And it is also for the greatest blessing to the believer that they have ever experienced. And today, in honor of Roger Bennett, my friend who is at home with the Lord, uh, um, <clears throat> I want to look today joyously at the joyous blessings that we're looking forward to. Uh, it cannot be described accurately, but know that what you are going to see and experience within yourself is beyond comparison to anything else in this world. And this we will all see. Now, when life gets hard, and, and I, I use a curtain, I purposely picked a red curtain for, uh, you know, and that's gone. But, you know, when the curtain's drawn back, because this curtain remains, we have a, you know, you have the description of the New Jerusalem, but doesn't it, does it make any sense to you? Because it doesn't to me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's this uh, kind of a glimpse, but what we do see is that, it's, this is the glory of Christ shining in our hearts in the reality of which we have never, ever comprehended. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, not entered in the heart of man, things that God has prepared for those who love him. That's past this curtain. We will all see it. So when life gets hard and down and things seem gray and hard and morose or whatever word you want to use for when life gets tough... Will you please glance past this curtain a little bit, as much as you can see, and know that the world that you're in now was always meant to be temporary. 
and your time in it was always meant to be temporary. The suffering that you and I experience in it was always meant to be temporary. And God is not hands-off in this world. He is ruling. And in all of those things that happen to you, God is smart enough, and He does, He promises this, that He's using it all to draw you closer to Him. Every bit of it has a purpose. Not one moment, not one thing, not one purpose does not have, one person, sorry, does not have a purpose in showing you the face of God. Every bit of it. Go to Romans 8.16. Romans 8.16 The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may be able to be glorified with Him. Now this glorification... You experience it now in time, that you see his glory, but it's nothing like what's going to happen. When his true glory shines through you, and you're going to see it for the first time in the purity and magnitude that you will, that you cannot see now. We only see in part, as Paul said, 1 Corinthians 13, he said, I see in part, but I don't see the whole thing. None of us do. But even the part that we see just draws us to it. But know that when the Christ returns, we, who are convinced by the Holy Spirit within that we are the children of God, are also convinced that we're going to see this glory in its magnitude and purity. And then he says in verse 18, and I love, even in our song, in the second song, we were at the glories of heaven. I love that song. It's so Celtic, isn't it? Yeah, you know. It makes my my Celtic blood just like loves it. But for you know, our Lord in heaven, God in heaven, Father in heaven, and then in the last song, it is well with my soul. Brings you right back down to earth, where as as much as we marvel in the glory of God, we're still going to have to deal with hard things, and difficulties, and persecutions on earth. And the same here. We're going to be glorified with him. And then he says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not even close. Are there sufferings in this present time? Mm -hmm. Is God unfair in them? No. Mm -mm. Will we at times say, God, this is unfair? Of course we will. Can he be unfair? You know, one of the titles to Jesus is uh, in Revelation, one of the many. He's got hundreds of titles. He is called Faithful and True. Faithful and True. There's nothing he does or says that can be wrong. All right, so here, we again, we're looking at eternity, but we've got to go back a little bit. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. When I say back, I mean back in time to the death and resurrection of our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. If there's no death and resurrection, there's nothing 
There's no one to bless. God is glorified before Christ becomes a man. God is glorified forever. He doesn't need to do this to create mankind, create the world. He doesn't need to do it to be glorified. God is already glorified because of who and what he is. However, there's no one to bless if he doesn't do what he does. And so, we have the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, this whole chapter, is a gem. Verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. You know, one of the first doctrines to be attacked by the Satan was the resurrection. They were already being told in Corinth that there was no such thing. The Greeks, and this is a very Greek world that they're in, a Hellenistic world, they, to them, resurrection was a farce. And it permeated the church. These uber-smart philosophers were like, no, there's no such thing as a resurrection. Definitely not a bodily resurrection. Are you insane? So that's why Paul has to write this chapter to them. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. See, this first fruits, this is a festival in Israel where you took the first of your crop, which was, and you took the best that you had of that, and you brought it to the priest, and you offered it. He waved it before God as a thanksgiving to God for what he had given you. But that crop that you produced to the priest represented all the crop that you left back in your field. In other words, it was the same. And Christ being the first fruits, we're the crop. The wheat. Not the tares, but the wheat. And like he's the first fruits, we're like him in resurrection. For since by a man death came, by a man also the resurrection of the dead. Also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, the first to be resurrected. After that, those who are Christ that is coming. Notice the coming of Christ. Those who are his. And we could go into that here. There's, uh, there's a lot of writing about um, the order of the resurrection, whether it's church first and then Old Testament saints and so on. But I'm not concerned about that here today. I'm concerned about resurrection in general. All. Look, if you're resurrected in eternity for all heaven, I don't think you're going to be miffed at what order it came in. <laughs> if it was like alphabetical, say, and you're like, oh, come on, i got to wait. I'm an S, you know, I got away, I'm at the end. <clears throat> For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming, and then comes the end. Paul writes out human history here in like one sentence. And then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom of sorry, he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put into subjection, it is evident that he is accepted. Who put all things in subjection to him when all things are subjected to him then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him 
so that God may be all in all. You see the word subjected there like ten times. And we're like, what in the world is he talking about? The, uh, the subjection of our Lord is not the fact that he loses his rulership or loses his kingship. It's that history is over. Human history is over. See, the Lord Jesus Christ is the king of history. And when, kiss, when history is over, there's no more need for him to be king of a temporary world. No need. The temporary world is gone and never to return. And so the kingdom becomes how many? One. There isn't Israel and the church and then there's the, you know, Jews, Christians, Mormons. No, there's no Mormons. I'm sorry. I didn't even mean to get there. I ruined the whole thing. So in verse 25, notice it says he must reign until... He has put all enemies under his feet. That word reign is an infinitive, and unlike English, Greek infinitives have tense, and the tense of that verb is present. And what it indicates, because Paul could have put it in an aorist, or he could have put it in in a perfect, uh, another tense, but he purposely puts this in a present tense for us to see, and other scripture bears this, that Christ rules now. It's not like we're waiting like Christ has no control over this world and we're waiting for him to come back to take control. That's not true. He has control now. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we say, well, where is the control? Where is his control? That's a great question. Where is his authority? Where is his control? in this world, through all history. Where has it been? It is necessary that he reign until he has put all things in subjection under his feet. The most quoted passage in the New Testament from the Old is that, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110, verse 1. Human history, and I I love this, I love history. Human history is a mediatorial kingdom where God rules. He rules, but he, during this time, allows mankind to hear and to see his mediators. That's one of the ways that you can look at history. There's many ways. Sometimes we try, we like, we, what we want is simple definitions. And if, you know, things don't always stay between the lines of simplicity. I mean, we would love it if it did. But things are more complex than that. But then sometimes we overcomplicate things, and then we lose it that way. And if you oversimplify, you get false doctrines. If you overcomplicate, you get false doctrines. And so there's a trap there. And so we have to be careful just to stick with the Scripture And one of the ways you can look at history is that history is a a long line of mediators. So, God at the fall, God has a mediator. The first one's Adam. God speaks to Adam. Adam speaks to presumably his sons. As you move through the scripture, there's other mediaries. Like go to Noah. And then there's Abraham. And then there's Moses. And, and, and on and on. You have all the prophets and David, Samuel, uh, the first of the prophets, 
on to David, uh, through the judges even. And God spoke to people, and those people spoke to the people. And if they were priests and kings, they represented the people. Uh, if they were prophets, they also, in a way, represented the people. But they, they heard God's message and related it to everybody else. Right? You haven't heard from God, and neither have I, not directly. It's always through a mediator. So in human history, we're allowed to see and hear his mediators. I use both because Jesus said to Israel, as did Isaiah, the prophet, a mediator, that you have ears to hear, but you don't hear. You have eyes to see, but you don't see. We're allowed to see and hear the mediators. We're also allowed to accept them or reject them. And we're also allowed to either sin or do good. That's very oversimplified, but I hope you see what I mean. It's a mediatorial kingdom is the rule of God through a divinely chosen representative who not only speaks and acts for God, but represents the people before God. It is a rule that has especially reference on the earth, and the mediator is always a human being, never an angel. And here, in 1 Corinthians 15, when the last, and so throughout this mediatorial kingdom history, there are enemies to God. There's Satan and sin and people and false doctrines and so on. There's all kinds of enemies to God, but the last enemy to be defeated is death. Death is an enemy to God. When the last enemy of God has been put down by our Lord, the purpose of human history has been complete. In short, human history can be seen as these mediators, mediation between God and man on earth. And when they're and coming through, that's a weird noise, coming through uh, all the mediators, we come to the final mediator, who is Jesus Christ, the one final mediator. When the, so, and once that happens, that's when human history has the opportunity to either accept or reject him. Right? It makes sense. that you. So mankind has this choice. And God, as he's ruled this world, has had the choice of, <laughs> it's weird, has had the choice of either turning that thing off or letting it go on. And we're not going to care because we're here to hear God's word and we'll get over it. <clears throat> When the final mediator comes, right, the mediator reveals the Father here in Luke 10:22. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. John 1:18, 8, 8, he is the only begotten God, and he has explained him. <clears throat> and so by his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ has subjected himself uh, to uh, Jesus Christ, the mediator, subjects himself to God's enemy so that he can abolish death. So he comes in, Jesus Christ comes into human history and all of these, and God has allowed this, God has sent mediator after mediator after mediator. Jesus is the final one. And when he comes, he subjects himself 
to the evil and sin of this world, and he subjects himself to death. And by doing so, he conquers what we cannot conquer. And and by doing so, he qualifies us for eternity. But though qualified for eternity, he leaves us here. And by leaving us here, he says, look, I have given you life that is eternal. Right? You have within yourself some of the characteristics, not all of them, but you have some of the characteristics of that coming kingdom. The kingdom is based upon a foundation of Christ. You have Christ in you. The kingdom is based upon a foundation of love and peace and joy and patience and kindness. You have that in you. And while you're surrounded in a world of those who reject the mediators, who reject the gospel, who sin and do evil, you're a light to the world to shine. This, what you're shining is the future kingdom. And when, like some of our loved ones and their families face death, because death is the final one to be conquered, when their families, like I saw, I saw Roger a few days before he died, and his family around him, and they're happy. They're not falling apart. They're happy. They're happy for him. And I'm sure it's the same with all believers. This what we know is dying grace is this ability to face something that scares everybody to death and and we face it with courage and joy. How is that possible? Have you gone to heaven and seen it and come back? Have you seen this Lord who promised you that you would not die? That you would have eternal life. Have you seen him? Have you heard him? No. And yet it's very, very, very true. And we know it to be. Go to Revelation chapter 20. I think I know what that is. That's a fire alarm that was going off before. So Thanks for bearing with it. Always something going wrong in the basement. Either the microphone or something. Revelation 20:14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the judgment of the coming Lord. But this, of course, would be the final judgment after the judgment of the second coming. Uh But notice, the second death is the death of death. Death is no more. In 1 Corinthians 15, he conquers it. And once this is done, once death is thrown into the lake of fire, no one will die again. It is the end of it. The end of history. So with the end of the last enemy... There can be no more intermediate state. There's no reason for it. Well, I, you know, that's not for me to say there's no reason for it. God says it's over. Once the last enemy who is death is defeated, it's over. The intermediate state. And that's why the, this world, always meant to be intermediate, always meant to be temporary, will be completely demolished. 
this silly graphic, I find it silly. These All depictions of the New Jerusalem I find to be wanting. But of course they should be because God gives us scant evidence, but he gives us just enough so that you and me can form pictures in our own minds. And your picture of the New Jerusalem ain't going to be the same as mine. And as you learn more and more about it and love your Lord more and more, that picture is going to change. But it's yours. Right? That's yours. No one can say your mental picture of eternity. Right? The New Jerusalem's on earth with a new earth and new heaven. There's no such thing as heaven and earth anymore. Not then. Like God in heaven and me on earth. Earth and heaven are one. There's one kingdom as we read. And so this, whatever it will look like, however you picture it, picture it. Don't rob yourself of the picture. Don't rob yourself of the creativity that God has given you to marvel and to imagine what the next life will be. Because if you don't, you'll find yourself being so burdened by this life, especially as you get older. One of the other bummers about getting older is you start figuring out what reality really is. I was a lot more optimistic as a younger man. But I know more now. I also know more about human nature. And and even my own. The benefit to that is you lose some of your pride. Because you realize that you're not all that cool. (laughs) Or that smart. Or that this or that that. And that's great. You see, occupation with this is occupation with the Lord. And so this is the final order of things. Look at 21.5. Revelation 21.5. He who sits on the throne said, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Brand new. That's the final order. In the eternal kingdom, heaven comes down to earth. God dwells with men face to face. This had never happened before. In the face of Jesus Christ, men at last will see the face of God with no hindrance. And it won't be temporary. Throughout Old Testament history, we see theophanies. We see God show up. He shows up to Abraham. He shows up to Gideon. He speaks. He showed up to Hagar. The first person he shows up to is not a Jew, a Gentile. And uh, he shows up. But then he goes away. And they're all super scared. They're like, oh my God, I I just saw God. We're going to die. Samson's parents saw God. And then, even when they saw Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ rises from the dead. Mary Magdalene figures out he's not the gardener, that's the Lord. What does she do? She grabs hold of him. Of course she does. She loves him. She grabbed hold of him. And Jesus said, Mary, let me go. I haven't come into my glory. It's hard to understand that. But after reading, after doing this for today, I was like, you know what? Jesus, in probably, maybe, and my now I think, he was telling Mary that you will be able to cling to me forever when I come again. Now I must leave you. You must stay in the temporary world. You've got to stay here while I'm in heaven and you've got to wait for me to come back. And then you can grab hold of me all you want for all of eternity. But until that time, you and I must be separate physically while absolutely united spiritually. And Mary, 
And it's really neat now that I think about it because he says to Mary, now go and tell the brethren that I've risen. So when he says, Mary, let go of me, he makes her his evangelist. Go tell others about, stop clinging to me and go tell others about me. In this world, we are a shining light of eternity to all others. And when the time comes, us in eternity are going to be face to face. Now that is good news. Revelation 21.3. In a little out of order. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So then, the people of the mediatorial kingdom, the temporary kingdom, come into union with the original kingdom of God. And wonderfully, as from the grace of God, not everything from this old kingdom is abolished. The word of God isn't abolished. All the good that you did, divine good, it's not abolished. It becomes history for all of eternity. Think of the scars of Christ. They're from this world. They are eternal. The good that you do here is eternal. But there are some things, many things from this world that we're all familiar with that are going to be gone forever. Look at verse 4. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Many things in this world are never going to be seen again. Some of the things in this world are going to become a memorial for all of history. All of eternity, I mean. So what do we do now? We sit around and wait. (laughs) As being like, rapture today? Nope. All right, fine. I'll just hang out and wait and do nothing for another day, waiting for my Lord. Go live on a mountaintop so you're like the first to go. Because, of course, it's geographical. You know, the higher up you are, the faster you get there. If the rapture happened now, all of us in the basement, we'd be last. (laughs) But the last are first, so maybe that works out that way. So what about now? Well, again, um, yeah, so one of the aspects of eternity that's here, one, there's many, but one, so what's here will go into eternity, some of it. What's in eternity is here now, some of it. Why? Because the passage we read in 1 Corinthians 15, I won't go back to for the sake of time, he must reign until all enemies are put under his feet. That word for reign, I'll give you this anyway, is a present tense. This It is necessary that he reigns. It's a present tense means he's reigning now. And the reigning now is not bodily, physically. Like when he comes, he rules with a rod of iron. That's not happening now. He allowed, In his reign, he allows sin and evil and death. But Jesus is in the process of ruling now. And how is he ruling? I asked that question before. Where's his authority now? And it's absolute. It certainly isn't in the White House or Congress. I, I, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure in some places it's there. 
But where is that authority? It's in the hearts of those who obey Him. Right? For us, Jesus has removed the curse of sin. Jesus has removed the curse of death. And we have absolute confidence in His authority and His coming back. And so when the people, the rulers of this world, if that were to happen, and they say, like they said to the early church, you can't worship Christ anymore. You must not do that. You must bow down to the emperor and offer incense to him. And so many Christians said, no way. And they said, we'll kill you. We'll throw you to the lions. We will murder you. And they were like, I can't disobey my Lord. Where do they get such confidence? It's because of the authority of Christ was in their hearts. And the authority of Christ can be in your heart and in mine. You know, when Christ becomes so real and so loved by you and so magnified by you, you find it a privilege to obey Him, not a burden. A privilege. And being privileged is to be a member of the kingdom. To be a member of the future kingdom. He is ruling now in your heart, hopefully. And that lordship salvation doctrine is false. If he's not ruling in your heart, it doesn't mean that you're an unbeliever. It means that you're immature. It means that you haven't seen yet. All right, last passage. Go to Hebrews 2. I mean, tell Roger when we get to heaven that the message, that the service that was dedicated to him had a fire alarm go off in it. So, sorry, you know. What does that mean, Roger? <clears throat> so, as we started with, we're weak. He's strong. We're weak. We get weaker. Not in our hearts. The new man, new woman is renewed day by day. The outer man decays. In and through him we're strong. If we think that ever we're strong on our own without him, uh, we fail miserably and you all know that. You've done it. The one who has reversed the presence of sin in the world has not reversed the presence of decay. He could have. He has all power. He did not. And that is because you're not meant for this world. To you, this world should become weak. You know, I, I find that when you're in this, as this body decays and it gets worse and worse and worse, if we live old enough to experience it, Aren't we like ready to go? You think God does that on purpose? You bet He does. There's so many aches and pains, and I can't remember where my keys are anymore or where I live, you know? And it's just, it happens to us all. It's not just the physical body that decays, the brain, which is physical, it decays. It's not your fault. It's designed to be that way, which we see in others. It's hard. I watched my mother go through it. She, she, her brain failed. She's happy. <laughs> Just the brain failed. 
It's designed to, folks. Don't take it personal. You're not meant for this world. God did not reverse or alter our physical decay, which includes our brains. We were never meant for this world, and so in the framework of this world, we must die within it. We must. But because of Christ, and specifically because of his resurrection, ascension, and his return, we have eternal life, and we will live eternally in a new body and in a new world. All right, look at Hebrews 2.5. We'll just read this and close. It says it all, really. He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Psalm 8. Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hand. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we will. But we do not see him who is made, but we do see him, sorry, who is made for a little while lower than angels, namely Jesus. You see, uh, Psalm 8 is actually applied to us to all mankind, that we're weak. It's in Psalm 8 that Jesus said, I will proclaim strength in babes, in in children. It's something that he quoted in the temple. Uh, And so where are the children that God is going to proclaim praise through and strengthen? And then comes Jesus, who also takes on himself true humanity, who also for a little while becomes lower than angels. And in verse 9, Namely, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that the grace of God might, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him. See, and therein there it turns. Everything turns on that. This temporary world, this mediatorial kingdom, the mediator comes in, proclaims God to God's people, to Israel, and they reject him. They say, no, you're not good enough. And then what happens? Well, the Old Testament doesn't say a word of it. What's supposed to happen after the people of God reject the true mediator, the Messiah, with all the other promises of his coming and glory and all of that? What in the world is supposed to happen? And we find out that there's a mystery that God didn't reveal in the past, but is now revealed that between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, there would be a whole period of time in which God would put himself and eternal life inside people. And he would leave those very people in the fallen world that rejected Christ. And that there would be this waiting period. We don't know when he's coming back. There would be this waiting period for however long, that then he would return and make everything right. But until that time, it's Christocentric. Christ indwells people. His authority, his power, his ability, his wisdom, all of it by which he rules, he would put inside people. 
and leave them in a fallen world. It's really pretty smart. I could see God in heaven saying, thanks, Joe. Thanks. Verse 10, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory. See that? To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. From which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. <clears throat> so skip down to verse 14. This is for sake of time. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power over death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of all who are tempted. As I said before, so we decay and we die. Jesus conquered death. Not so we can live on in this world, but so that we can live on in the next. And he said three times, the very last chapter of his entire scripture in Revelation 22, three times, I am coming quickly. The Apostle John responds at the very end, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. May we all long for that while we live in this world. And when things become hard and get us down, Remember, the Lord's coming quickly. And this eternity is yours. You're a part of it. You're a member of it. We don't have to fear anything. Let's pray. And thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the gifts that come with your promises concerning eternal life, concerning our Lord and Savior and his coming again. We ask, Father, that through your spirit, all of our hearts would be just energized and enlightened by the truth of your reality in the coming Lord who will make us new and make a new heaven and new earth. We ask in Christ's name, amen.